If I'm a little bit more animated and energetic today during this sermon than usual, don't worry that there's anything wrong with me or anything like that. I, I just got a, a Fitbit, so I'm trying to get some extra steps and heart rate up a little bit, so don't worry. It's not craziness. It's just, uh, I don't know, trying to get fit, so... It's a mean old world, heavy in need, and that big machine is just picking up speed. That's a uh, line from a favorite song of mine, Hard Times, by Gillian Welch and David Rawlings, uh, one of the best bands in the world. And if, um, to me, what that captures, it's a mean old world, heavy in need, and that big machine is just picking up speed. To me, that captures a feeling that a lot of people have. Just a general sense that things don't seem to be working that well, and that things could easily go very wrong at any time. Uh, so this, this message is meant to be a, a Christian response to that feeling. And uh, we'll see in Hebrews that he uh, saw that problem too, the writer of Hebrews, and responded to it. Um, this is going to be a salvation message. Now, you may be thinking, I'm already saved. And my response to that is, amen, praise God, you are saved. But please give this message a chance. Because in the end, I'm going to do that preacher thing where I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes and I'm going to invite some people to raise their hand if they want to be saved. And my hope is that even some of you who are, in fact, already saved will, like me, be considering raising your hand. Uh, my hope is that some of you uh, will choose to raise your hand together with me and that we'll together experience a fresh kind of salvation that we may not have been experiencing recently. So let's pray, and then we'll uh, go into the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this place and time and this group of people gathered together in your name. Thank you so much for the time of worship that we shared together and the beautiful promises and uh, messages that are in those songs. And Lord, I thank you just so much that you've arranged uh, our lives and history and the place and everything that all of us individually can be here today. Lord, I thank you for this time set aside when your word can be shared and we can all learn together. I pray that you'd open our hearts and help us to uh, be active listeners and ready to listen and respond um, to the message being offered. And please help me to deliver it accurately. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at Hebrews. Uh, as you know, uh, we've been working through the book of Hebrews with our series, Better Than. And we're, uh, looking, we're working through it with uh, looking at what the author of Hebrews has to share with us about Christ and how he compares with the other things the world has to offer. Um, so we're going to start out, uh, just read through the passage. Um, this is Hebrews uh, chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. 
In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The writer of Hebrews is someone who was extremely familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and he uses the scriptures in ways that are very challenging for people like us. Uh, we have a, a familiarity and a general knowledge about the scriptures, but if we want to look something up, we just pick up our Bible and we look it up and we read it. Um, but the author of Hebrews is operating under the assumption that the reader is very knowledgeable about the scriptures and that the scriptures were learned by hearing and memorizing. He assumes that he can just quote a line or two from a passage and that the listener will immediately connect that to the entire story and context of that passage. So in this verse, uh, you know, we can see uh, that, uh, that we just read, the author quotes a couple of sentences from Psalm 8. Uh, but the expectation would be that the reader would understand that the author, by referencing those two lines, is bringing in the full message and context of Psalm 8 into the discussion. Uh, later in this passage, he's going to do the same thing with an additional psalm and with a passage from Isaiah. To us, this might seem daunting, this expectation that you would just hear one line uh, from a verse and that that would bring the whole idea into your head. Um, but that's what would have been perfectly normal for a student of the scriptures at the time. Jesus used the same method uh, when he taught. He would just use a single line from scripture and anticipate that his listeners would naturally connect what he was saying to the whole passage. So the most uh, important example of this, or an easy example of it, is when Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, now that is the first line of the 22nd Psalm. So the expectation would be that what he's really saying is the entire contents of the 22nd Psalm you know, are being referenced. Uh, so similar to how we might just reference a song lyric or something and expect that people would have a general feel about what the whole thing is about. So he's not just saying that line, but connecting all the 22nd Psalm to the suffering he's going through. Uh, many bad interpretations have come from reading the sentence, my God, why have you forsaken me, without understanding that all of Psalm 22 is being brought into the conversation, not just that one line. So let's zoom in, and we're going to look at all of Psalm 8, which is what uh, Hebrews quotes a portion of here. Uh, and then we're going to remind ourselves what it says so that we can better understand what Hebrews is trying to say. So Psalm 8 is a, very, is a familiar one, a very beautiful psalm. It says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet all flocks and herds, 
and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So in Psalm 8, we have a meditation on how great God is as the creator and ruler over the universe, how tiny human beings are compared to all of that, and then this amazing thing that God has put those human beings in charge over his creation, right? And this awe that God would do such a thing, you know, um, that he could put humans in such an exalted state that they could serve over rulers of what God created. It's an awe-inspiring notion to imagine that God in his power would create and would then would set humans as rulers over that creation. But the author of Hebrews notices a problem with Psalm 8. This great teaching that human beings are the rulers, have been set as the rulers over God's creation, doesn't match up with what we see if we look around us in the world. He says, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. So there's a contradiction, right? Psalm 8 says, everything is subject to you. But is everything subject to you? No, right? That is an understatement. It's, it's not just that everything is not subject to us. We have very little control over the world around us. Not only is the world out there not subject to us, not obedient to us, it's terrifying. It's killing us left and right. It's infecting us with diseases. It's drowning us in floods. Sometimes the earth shakes and kills us by the thousands. Uh, we can try reading Psalm 8 to a crocodile and telling it that God has put the wild animals under our feet, and that crocodile will gladly take a bite out of our foot to test our theology. It's a scary world. And a lot of things happen all the time which are completely out of our control. This out-of-control world causes us to fear. And this fear that something unexpected and out of control can happen is a part of being human. Sometimes we manage and we control that fear. Sometimes we distract ourselves from it. Sometimes we try to become strong, rich, powerful, or influential to get as much control as we can but we can't control very much, so we get afraid. This is a fundamental problem that the author of Hebrews is raising. Human life, as created by God, is supposed to be one of dignity and peace, but instead, we experience fear and frustration. I think that almost everyone, Christians, non-Christians, no matter what your belief or unbelief, knows instinctively that this isn't right if they just think about it. Why should we be so afraid, so out of control? Why should things be so dangerous? The world is scary and feels out of control. It's a mean old world, heavy in need, and that machine is just picking up speed. Not only the scriptures, but also the everyday experience of life verify this problem. There's a lot to be afraid of, but it isn't supposed to be like that. So the author starts toward a solution to this problem by introducing Jesus into the discussion. So we already read this. We're going to look at it again. This is verses 8 and 9. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, 
now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The, the idea here is that Jesus joined humanity, not just joined humanity in the position that we were created for, but joined with us in our predicament. Not just the Psalm 8 version of humanity, which is the intention, but the world that we live in, this dangerous world, and scary and out-of-control world, Jesus joined us there. And he experienced suffering and death, which are the scariest things the world has to offer. And that he did for everyone. So let's look into the next section to see a little more about that. These are verses 10 and 11, Hebrews 2. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. First, I have to say that I absolutely love this name for Jesus, the pioneer of salvation. If you think about what a pioneer is, they are the person who goes in first, into a wild and dangerous place, an unsafe place, and they do the hard work of changing that unsafe and dangerous place into a place that is fit to live. They don't know what dangers lurk in that wild land, but they go in first as the pioneer so that others can follow. And this verse has this difficult idea in it that Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, was perfected by what he suffered. How could Jesus, who was already perfect, be perfected? I think that the idea here was that he became a perfect match for us by his suffering. Because what do those who suffer under fear of the unknown need more than someone who has gone through it and who can show the way? We need a guide who has been there and who understands us. I don't want to follow a map made by Superman, right? It was easy for him. I don't want to follow a map made by someone who has never been there. Uh, no, it really is scary and dangerous out there. And the perfect guide I need is someone who has been through the same situation. I need someone who has been through the scary unknown, just like I'm going to have to go through, and who made it through. I also need someone who understands my limitations, what I can and can't do, what I can and can't handle. This is why it's so important that Jesus didn't just point the way of salvation or didn't just tell the way of salvation, but that he pioneered the way. He didn't just say, you go there and that will be a good result. He went there through, out the other side, to ask us to follow him through the path that he set. Thorns right, are a symbol of a blocked path, but they're also the symbol of Jesus' crown of glory. This is right and fitting. So moving forward into the next part of the passage, we come upon a difficult section with some quotes from Psalm 22, and two quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. 
He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. So I don't know about you, but it doesn't jump obvious to me what this is about. Um, but we, this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, that the writer of Hebrews anticipates that if he just reads a line from a certain Old Testament passage, that will remind people of that passage, and they'll draw the whole context of that passage into the you know, discussion. So Psalm 22, which is quoted first, this, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. This, that psalm is a prophecy of Jesus suffering on the cross. And it is a psalm about someone who is suffering, but God doesn't abandon them. He brings them through and sustains them. Um, Isaiah chapter E is where the next two quotes are from. The I will put my trust in him and here am I and the children God has given me. Um, this is a story about how the kingdom of Israel felt in great danger because of tumult and uh, trouble that was brewing in the world around them. So they were going to look to the niche, powerful nations surrounding them to try to get help from those nations. Um, and the people became fearful. And they looked to the nations around them in hope of protection at that troubling time. But God counseled the faithful not to fear what other people were fearing, but instead to look to the Lord. I encourage you to read both of these passages, uh, as there is a lot to chew on about this topic, but I think we can clearly see these references adding to what we've already discussed, addressing how we react and live, and how God leads and provides in a world that is out of control and scary. Um, moving forward... Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Since the children have flesh and blood, what does it mean to have flesh and blood? It means to be human, to be vulnerable, to be someone who can get hurt, to be at risk. Um, so, so let's talk about salvation. Usually, when we talk about salvation, or when we talk about getting saved, we're primarily talking about heaven and hell. And we often summarize the gospel like this. I was under punishment because of my sin. But, God, but Jesus died on the cross and took the punishment I deserved and gave me eternal life. My sins are washed away in his blood, and now I am God's child. I will now live for eternity in heaven with him. Can I get an amen to that? All right, amen. This is true, and it is good. Praise God it's true. It's really true. That is salvation. But there is even more salvation available. Jesus is an atoning sacrifice. Yes, that's what we just talked about. But he is also a pioneer of additional lands of salvation beyond that. He saved you from the consequences of sin, yes. But how about some of these forms of salvation? He wants to make you a citizen of a holy nation. He wants you to live in the experience of being a son or daughter of a great king. 
He wants you to have a life of usefulness and be saved from futility and frustration. He wants to free you from the burdens that you've been carrying of guilt, jealousy, and anger. He wants, you to, he wants to remove all shame and instead make you a beacon of hope for the lost. These are all salvation. Um, Jesus pioneered all of these and so many others. So here, if there, grab your Bible if you have it. All right. If not, grab the one from the pew in front of you. Or just grab, I, don't, I guess you can grab your phone. It's kind of lame, but do it. All right? And now, you've heard of, have you heard of this? Have you ever heard of when they call somebody a Bible thumper? All right, you know, they, sometimes people will call someone a Bible thumper. So I want you to try it. Go ahead. Do you, do you hear that sound? All right. Try it again, but now listen carefully to the sound. You know what that sound is? The sound of salvation. This book is full of so many kinds of salvation. Yes, absolutely, at the top of the list, salvation from the consequences of your sin and salvation from hell and a promise of eternity, but so much more. Think of all the ways people in this book were saved from slavery, from loneliness, right? From wrath, from war, right? So many ways, from futility, frustration. There's so much salvation here. Um, it's why the book is thick. It's full of salvation. Um, it sounds like that because it's full of salvation. But in the context of these verses in Hebrews, there's a very specific salvation being discussed. Jesus wants to free those who are held in slavery by their fear. Specifically, he says, the fear of death. But I think that's just the top boss of all the fears. I need saving from them all, all the fears. Because fear can make me a slave. And that's not God's plan for me. So why shouldn't we be afraid? Right? I mean, death really is coming. Suffering really is coming. So why shouldn't we be afraid? The things that we tend to be afraid of, they're real. They really might happen. Some of them absolutely will happen. But I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be in slavery to my fears. Instead, I want to be saved. So why shouldn't I be afraid? Let's look at a couple reasons. Not to fear. Jesus shows us what is on the other side. That death is not the end. That there is a resurrected life beyond it. And he didn't just say it's there. He went there and demonstrated that it's real. The promise of a resurrected life on the other side of our worldly sufferings changes everything. And I'm not just talking about heaven. Here on earth, there is also life on the other side of the difficulties and challenges that you're facing and I'm facing right now. I just want to emphasize that. I feel confident that there are many people in this room that right now are looking right at something that is really scary and difficult and out of control. That, and that fear of that wants to put you in slavery. So what we need to know is that Jesus has demonstrated and shown that there is a life on the other side of that thing. 
It doesn't mean we're not going to have to go through it and that Jesus isn't going to go through it with us. But we got to remember there's a promised land on the other side of the desert. Right? And that, and that focus and knowledge that Jesus not only said it's there, but showed that it's there, really did it, went there, demonstrates that it's real, and we can put our focus onto that, understanding that Jesus is still going to have to carry us through what we're going to have to go to to get there. This gives us hope and a knowledge that there is so much more beyond that which is scaring us. Think about the children of Israel, squeezed with the Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other, and at that moment, they were exactly where God wanted them, fulfilling their role in his plan for the salvation of the world. It was easy in that moment to forget the promised land, but the promised land is called the promised land for a reason, because God promised it. Remembering that helps us see beyond our fears into the beautiful promises that we have in Jesus. Second, not being afraid frees us to take action. Fear of death and of the unknown will often literally freeze us. Because we don't know if what we might do would have a good outcome or a bad outcome, we do nothing. Not being in control means we can't guarantee that taking an action won't result in something bad happening. And if we're scared something bad might happen, we just do nothing. But being saved from fear sets us free to be able to take action. We can use our best judgment from the knowledge and wisdom that we have and just do our best. We can take a risk and understand that it is okay if the result is not what we wanted. Billy Graham said, fear can paralyze us and keep us from believing God and stepping out in faith. The devil loves a fearful Christian. So that's the second one, that not being afraid frees us to take action. Third, a fearful life is a joyless life. Worrying about the future fights against enjoying and being thankful for today. In Psalm 16 it says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord, with him at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Fourth, fear separates us from other people. Fear plays a role in the epidemic of loneliness that is currently afflicting our world and the church. So many of us fear that if we are open with our true selves and our true thoughts, that we'll be judged or won't be liked, or that will be rejected. Oddly enough, avoiding that risk results in the same outcome that was feared in the first place, ending up alone. But Jesus is drawing us together. And the radical love that Jesus has demonstrated by him accepting us completely, even though he knows us completely, sets the pattern for how we can accept one another, warts and all and build a community where fear is removed and friendships can grow and thrive. Fifth, we can be a part of amazing things. If you think about the story of David and Goliath, okay, so you're probably, I hope you're familiar with the story of David and Goliath. If not, read it or even just come up to me afterwards, I'd be happy to tell it to you. The, if you just think about that story and you kind of squint your eyes and tilt your head, 
as you look at the story, and look at it from the perspective of faith, then the unbelievable part is not that David killed the giant. The unbelievable part is that all the soldiers of Israel cowered in fear. Right? They knew the story of Moses. They knew about Joshua. They knew about Gideon. They knew about Samson. They knew all those stories. But, ooh, scary giant. Right? They knew about all these things, but they feared, so they were frozen. They feared the giant more than they feared God. Seeing David kill the giant, however, if you look in the story, sets all the soldiers of Israel free to charge into the battle while the Philistines run. Seeing God at work put courage in their hearts and removed their fear. Then they were ready to take their part in a great victory. God is still on the move and at work all around us. And when we see that happen, we shouldn't just watch. We should charge into the battle and be ready to say, what part can I play in this amazing thing that God is doing? Being set free from fear allows me to take action and to be part of the amazing things that God is already doing if we just want to look and see what they are. Next, fearful Christians make the gospel look weak. It's natural for people who do not know about Jesus to be scared. If, if the story of Jesus is not true, we should all be scared because the world really is completely out of control and there's nothing we can do about that, right? But if the story is true, then we have no reason to be afraid. There is a lot of scary stuff out there, but for Christians, to be scared sends a message to the world that all this Jesus stuff is made up and not real. I just want to say that one more time. For Christians to be scared sends a message to the world that all this Jesus stuff is made up and not real. Right? So just think about the changes. You know, just think about all this stuff. All the stuff. Right? You got the stuff on the news. You got the financial markets. You've got all the political stuff. You've got social changes that are happening that we don't like or that we do like or just rapid change. You've got laws being changed that you think might affect you. You've got, you know, just the story of your life, right? And a lot of times, if you see Christians speaking in public, it's clear that they are terrified of these things, right? What message does that send? What's so scary about any president or any congressman? Compared to Jesus? Compared to God? They're just like, right? Uh, we should be engaged and spreading the gospel into all of these situations, but not afraid. To hear some Christians talk, you might think that God is not more powerful than the president. It's just nonsense. I don't care which president or which party. They're nothing compared to God. They can't hold a candle to him, and we should not be afraid at all. They're kind of like Goliath. They seem like a big deal, unless you squint your eyes and look at the world through the eyes of faith. And then you realize God is a big deal. Our God is a consuming fire. He is alpha and omega. Every knee 
shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Those are the facts. So when we get a little scared, it's understandable. I'm not criticizing you for being scared, but we need to learn and move ourselves into seeing clearly how big God is compared to these things. Last, we can pray honestly about our fears. 1 Peter 5.7, one of those beautiful verses that we can just soak up. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. One of the most beautiful things about the Christian life is that when we go to God in prayer, we don't have to put on any kind of show for him or use any kind of special formulas, but that we can say to him the exact truth of everything that is in our hearts. And we have somebody, and he cares for us. Cast our anxieties on him. He cares for us. Right? And that's, I mean, what a precious, amazing truth. You know, that it doesn't matter what it is. There's nothing we have to hide from him. Nothing we have to, no, no act that has to be put on. We can bring it all honestly to him. And we can ask for help and we can anticipate receiving that help. Okay. So, now's the time to do the thing. All right? I'm going to ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm going to bow my head, close my eyes too. Lord Jesus, We believe how much you love us. And Lord, you know exactly the things that we're scared of or that cause us sometimes to be paralyzed with fear or that we really wish that we could control even though we can't. The things that are happening to us or that we're afraid might happen that frankly terrify us, Lord. And Lord, we cast all of those cares and worries, we bring them all to you honestly because you know us completely. You understand exactly how it feels in our bodies and in our minds when, we're, when we see those things. But Lord, we also understand from your word that there are so many reasons that we should not be afraid. But Lord, this is not something we can just do. The, thing, the fears that I have, that we here as a family have, we do not have the power in us to just not be afraid of those things, Lord. Um, even though we know there are so many good reasons not to be afraid of them and good benefits to not being afraid of them, Lord. But Lord, when it comes to this fear, we need the promise that is in this verse that we need you to be a savior to us, to rescue us from that fear which keeps us as slaves. Lord, we need that salvation from you by your direct power acting in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, we can try our best and we can do the things that help us to try not to be afraid. Um, but Lord, mostly we just need it from you as a direct blessing and direct help so that you can show us 
what's on the other side, that you can remind us about the promised land, that you can remind us of how strong you are compared to the things that we're afraid of. But Lord, we need that salvation from you. So now, Lord, as a group, uh, and I have my eyes closed, I have no clue uh, who will or will not respond to this, but Lord, as a group, uh, we're going to raise our hand or raise our hands to show, to just ascend as a message to you, Lord, I'm one of those people that has fears that I need you to be a savior to remove from me or to help me find the right Christian way to deal with those things and to trust them to you, to leave them into your hands. So now, just in a couple moments of silence, I'm just going to raise my hand with my brothers and sisters that also need this salvation. Perfect love drives out fear, as your word says. Lord, please fill us with your love and drive out the fear that can hold us in slavery. In Jesus' name, amen.